ma'am, whenever you're ready. All right, let's rock and roll. Cool. Welcome back, Better Everyday Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Brad Weems. I am live here from Urban Movement in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm here with Stu Brower, owner of Urban Movement and the creator of WTF Gym Talk. Stu, what is up? What's up, brother? This is awesome. How's it going? It's going good. Good, good. Got in town yesterday, uh, hung out with Stu a little bit last night. Good times. Um, Stu, for those that don't know you, yeah, give a little intro, who you are, what you do. Yeah. So my name's uh, Stu Brower. I am uh, 35 years old. I hail from Cleveland, Ohio is what I call home. I've kind of been a little bit of everywhere. I got into fitness when I was 15 years old, being a skinny, redheaded kid, all boys high school sports, trying to get laid. That entire, you know, shoved me down the rabbit hole of strength and conditioning, uh, Mark Ripito, Mel Sif, uh, Poliquin, all these guys. That took me to school where I got majored in exercise phys. In 2005, six, it's like I got a hot stock, right? Someone gave me a hot insider trading tip. Check out this CrossFit thing. I, you know, pursued it. I was doing an internship with a velocity sports performance in Nashville, Tennessee. It's where all my internships and my, uh, my college, you know, practical apps were. And I was like, oh, this thing's pretty cool. And I kind of just ran with that thing. So from 2006 to I opened my first brick and mortar location in, officially in 2011, um, that, that was my entire world was CrossFit and, and that element of strength and conditioning. That brick and mortar did very, very well. And then I had a, kind of a change of heart in how I believe I should be delivering fitness, what I wanted from a business perspective for my future. So I pivoted um, the building that we're in now. I purchased, I rebranded the business, kind of gutted the operations of it. And that is what's now Urban Movement, which we are now licensing across the country. Um, simultaneously in 2015, I picked up an iPhone and very similar to what you're doing now, I, uh, I started creating content that was educational and entertaining and publishing that out there. And that took um that took uh people sunk their teeth into it very quickly that evolved into a full-fledged consulting business and essentially a media company so now i make content for myself i do media deals with other companies i create content for them and um that's my full-time job and then i also just have the pleasure of still being able to be in the gym thing with urban movement it's awesome um I'll tell you what, when it comes to the fitness industry, there's no one putting out as much content as you. So Thank you. Uh, it's just uh, truly impressive. Um, you know, I know you don't consume a lot of content, but you are producing it all the time. And, um, you know, I, I started listening to your stuff probably back in 2017. Um, over that time, I've heard you talk about this show called How I Built This by Guy Raz. Yeah. Um, Great podcast. I've listened to your stuff. I've listened to podcasts that you've been on. I've never really heard the how I built this, you know, version for Stu Brower. Sure. So I think it would be really cool today to kind of uh, explore that, hear your story more in depth versus like those nuggets and knowledge bombs that you're always dropping. And let's dig a little bit deeper on you, Ben. 100%. How you, you know, how you got here. Let's so do it. Let's just go ahead and start with childhood. Um, yeah. So, you know... What was taking place at those early years that helped you create this hustle and drive to where you're at today? Yeah, so mom and dad, uh, very volatile marriage. It did, it, you know, my dad always had these amazing sales gigs. He was a killer salesman, like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, that that was very much my dad's gig, and he would do incredible. He would rise the ladder at a company. We, I mean, I remember we were living in Tampa, Florida. We had this dope home on Tampa, Florida. 
uh, right there on the water. He had two speed boats out there, just very much living like a, he, a very much a one percenter sales guy lifestyle as a young, young kid. And my sister's three years younger than me. We had an in-ground pool. It's just, it, you know, I see pictures of it now. I'm like, fuck, I lived that life for like a hot minute. And then my dad was very much a child of the 70s. And he would, you know, he'd get fired. He was Okay, you know, he's addicted to cocaine and party. My dad loved the party. So he'd grise, he'd do great, and he'd get, you know, belligerently drunk and, and caught on a bender at a work trip or something. They'd can him. But then another company would pick him up because they'd be like, we want a shark that can sell. So he always had work. But we were moving. We were in Florida. We were in California. He was in, I was born in Chicago, Illinois. He was doing work there at one point, Cleveland, Ohio. So we're always bouncing around. They get divorced. This volatile, horrible marriage comes to an end. Um, and, you know, that's Cleveland, Ohio was pretty much home for me at that point. I mean, my sister lived there. My dad lived there. My mom and I just was that typical. I'd see my dad on Wednesday, every other Wednesday or every other weekend and every Wednesday was like the shared parenting arrangement. And he kind of bounced back and forth a bunch of random jobs throughout then. And my mom was kind of the single mom role. And it was just me and my sister. But uh, that was it. I was always, uh, you know, uh, I played outside a lot. I was always very active. Um, you know, I would I would do push up. Like fitness to me was was always an element. I played football when I was younger. Um, I was big in grade school. I was a big kid in grade school. I'd fuck kids up in grade school. But then I went to high school and I was a dwarf. <clears throat> like everyone hit that growth spurt but me. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, like you know, typical kid. You know, typical upbringing as far as that goes as a child. So would you say your dad's, you know, his abilities and, you know, how he could sell, was that, you it's, know, kind of what gave you um, I, some insight on, like, how to work hard at an early an, age? There's an article in the Washington Post called The Last of a Dying Breed. It was written by a gentleman, I can't remember his name, I called him three years ago and tracked him down. They wrote an article on my dad uh, in the Washington Post, and it was essentially the lifestyle of this playboy he was a Z, he worked for Xerox at the time in the 70s he was he was the head head sales guy at Xerox and it was this and he talked in the third person like if you read it and you re- if a feminist were to read it or anyone in today even just a normal person in today's world they would read this and be like this guy is a chauvinistic piece of shit but it like it was a you know a product of his time but uh, he was very charismatic he had a personality i definitely think i get a little bit of that from him um, it's funny now though, uh, he had three big hobbies. He hunt, he would hunt. He's into Harley Davidson's. I mean, his bikes were everything and, and fast cars and photography. And, um, you know, we can talk about later down the story, but I definitely wanted to, as I grew up, um, I wanted to separate myself from my dad. Like I went by Stu, not Stuart. I did not want to have any association with the man and the things he had done and his ending. Um, and so I, I was like, I'm never going to get into that shit. Photography, fuck that. Like hunting, not a chance. Fast car, I don't care, right? And then it's so funny now because without even thinking about it, I am so into photography and cameras now. And I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I, I've, you know, I've got two electric motorcycles at my house, and I'm like, I'm looking to go buy the new Harley one. Like I'm like, I just accidentally found down this. It's like, holy shit, is that stuff real? Like, can you act? Are you not able to escape your parents at some point? Yeah, all of a sudden you're your dad. Yeah, literally. The only thing I don't think I'll do is hunting. I cannot get up at. Th- I don't mind get up at three in the morning, obviously, but I cannot get up three in the morning and sit in a deer blind and cover myself in deer piss and wait for something to come by. That's yeah. just not me. <laughs> Uh, just looking around Charlotte, I don't see many opportunities for you to go hunting. So I think we're good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you always talk about how you got in trouble. Um, what? Yeah. Middle school, disciplinary. High school? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you know, to to wrap it up for for full story for listeners. So my dad's uh, journey with drugs and stuff ended very tragically. He did kill himself uh, when I was sixteen. So that would have been two thousand and one. Yeah, right around like two thousand, two thousand and one, right around nine eleven. 
Um, and and that that there's a moment there in time where if you don't have a good steady base, my mom was great. I was playing lacrosse. I was in, living in New Jersey at the time. Um, I had things that keep me preoccupied and busy, uh, and that was really helpful. But when I, I ended up moving back to Cleveland, and I've ne- and I would get into a lot of trouble, and it was nothing bad. I wasn't like spray painting buildings or doing B and E's or doing anything like that. I was just just a kid fucking off on the weekends. Um, I would me and my buddies would go. It's like the era of Jackass and CKY. We'd go to the mall and we had a karaoke machine and we'd plug it in and we'd literally in the middle of the mall be singing karaoke loud just to get the video of it, just to get the video of it and fuck around. Like that was like the come up of the prank videos and stuff like that. So like I'd do silly shit like that. I got kicked off the lacrosse team a couple times for doing stupid stuff. Um, but yeah, there was some disciplinary things that ended me up in the weight room all the time because that's what detention was in my high school. Like, go go down and clean the weight room. And fuck it, I'm not cleaning the weight room. I was working out for three hours and mm-hmm. reading about, you know, Eric Cressy and all this kind of stuff. So would you be, would you have gotten into fitness had you not gotten in trouble and then and they're know, working out? You know, I... I think I would have because I went to high school and I was I, I did not hit the growth spurt everyone else hit. I was like 145 pounds soaking wet. I was, you know, so I was like, well, I, I've got to work on this. So I think the nature of me wanting to be better at lacrosse and just wanting to be f- the, the physicality of a young man wanting to be bigger and stronger, I think I would have found fitness ultimately. This just, you know, probably forced me down the academic route, I think, a lot more because I was I'd be in detention for like three hours a day. So like, uh, okay, well, I can clean the weight room. That took four, 30 minutes. And now what am I going to do? And there's just all these texts. You know, the high school that I went to is a crazy successful um, high school that produced like division one college talent for football. And there's all these textbooks. That's right. The condition. Well, fuck it. I got to stay down here anyway. If they see me in the hallways roaming around, they're going to give me another one. So I might as well hang out here and learn. Yep. Uh, so you're, you're working out um, instead of cleaning the the gym and uh so how do we like what happens next like so we're roughly at 16 to 17 to 18 where we're at in your life story yeah so uh what's the next phase of life look like early 20s yeah so i mean i went to you know these are my my schooling years were uh i went to co-ed grade school k through eight but it was shirt tie and catholic upbringing that my high school was an all boys jesuit shirt and tie the whole deal and I might, again, from, you know, messing up and, and not exactly um, being the most disciplinary sounding kid, my grades weren't awesome. The few things I really liked, I killed. Like, I was in AP physics. Like, I was really good at certain things, uh, creative writing, stuff like that, um, sociology. But everything else, I, if I didn't like it, I didn't do it. And that was, like, really early on where I, I kind of created this mantra. It's, I didn't create it, but I really embodied it. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I don't mean that in like a bratty way. Like I'm, Oh, I want to do it my way. I mean, like I literally just want to put myself in scenarios where I can literally do what I want to do when I want to do it. And you know, your wife wants you to go to the mall with her. I don't actually want to go to the mall with this person, but I want to hang out with you, so I'm going to go, right? Like, I just, I instantly kind of had that. So I couldn't get into the good schools. All my buddies were going to Ohio State, OU, um, you know, getting out. My sister went to the College of Charleston. I had no chance. So I just went to this small school in Southeast Ohio called Muskingum University. Um, their only claim to fame is that uh, John Glenn went there. It's a village even, and it was a dry village. You had to drive 10 minutes out to get to a beer through to get any alcohol. Uh, and I, and I went there and it's, you know, fitness stayed a huge part of my life. And I'd be, you know, again, I, then I hit that hot stock and, and with CrossFit there, um, and kind of went all in on it. But yeah, it was always like right around there was when I was like, well, how could I do what I want to do when I want to do it? I hadn't figured it out, but I knew 
I, I, I never was going to go to business school. I never was going to, like, I, I enrolled to uh, MTSU and I got accepted into a master's program there. And I, but even then, I didn't, I truly didn't want to do it. But I was like, what else am I, like, I hadn't figured that out. And then, you know, opening a gym and entrepreneurship is, is kind of the thing that presented itself to me as that opportunity. Gotcha. So, um, tell me about learning about CrossFit. Uh, was it just a buddy at school or? It was, so it was the Velocity Sports Performance. I was there, the CSCS had them as one of the pegs. For me to get my CSCS, I could go there and they would discount my books and testing. They were like an official like internship location for CSCS, the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And I was there and the gentlemen that were running it had founded it or had a CrossFit Nashville in there. They were like the original ones. And I was, uh, during college, I had about a two year stint where I was, um, I was, uh, experimenting with anabolic chemistry. So right now I sit at like 185 to 190 pounds. I'm five foot 11. Picture me in college at 215 pounds and a Mohawk. Wow. Yeah. I mean like intramural flight football, I fucking destroyed you. Like I was like, I, so I, I, this two year period where I got really into the study of anabolic chemistry. I was uh, doing steroids. Um, I was on, you know, test anethate and, uh, we were on, there was DECA and D ball. Like my room, my girlfriend at the time would inject me, um, on spots I couldn't reach. And like, I was so interested in anabolic chemistry. I did my senior thesis cause I was a sociology major and exercise physiology. And it was on the sociological implications of performance enhancing drugs and sports. That was my senior thesis. And I mean, I was, I was all studying on Balco and Barry Bonds, you know, and the McGuire thing had just happened several years prior. And Jose Canseco had written his book about five years prior. And, and you know, Lance Armstrong all came out and Marion Jones. I was just so deep down that rabbit hole. So big, juiced up dude, okay? And I show up at this internship and I'm like, I'm the man. And this 15-year-old kid kicks my ass in every one of these CrossFit workouts. And they're like hazy me with this thing. They're like, yeah, yeah, dude, dude, and it just destroyed me. And I went back, and I never, I never did another needle. I never did anything after that. I was like, fuck it, I could be, I need to be that fit. What I'm doing now is okay, but I just feel really puffy because I'm retaining a ton of water. So, do you remember the first workout that humbled you? Uh, it was, it was, it was not even like a traditional CrossFit workout. It was like, it was flipping the tire that they had there a bunch of times, a bunch of pull-ups. It was probably anything that required muscular endurance and and, and, in any kind of cardiovascular endurance. Like that was it. Like I, I just didn't have go. I couldn't go for probably more than probably two minutes without dying out. Like I could sprint 400s, fine. Anything long duration, a seven, eight, nine, 10, 20 minute workout, I was dead. Um, and you know, like where did all my strength go? It was just here six minutes ago. Why can I not pick this barbell up anymore? So you got so humbled that you're willing to give up steroid yeah. usage and you're going to lean out so you yeah, get yeah. better at CrossFit. And when I mean lean out, it was just like, well, fuck. Like, cause I started watching the Freddie Camachos and the Greg Amundsen's. I'm like, these guys look even better than I do. Right, I was big, like you know, uh, you know, doing uh, Greek Week and um, tug of war challenges and shit like that. I'm your guy, right? Like at the at the at the parties on Saturday night, if someone came into our house they didn't want, I fucking throw them out. Like I was that guy, but it there was no application for it outside of like in the weight room. So like when Cross was like, oh my god, I can do cool things with a barbell, and I can make a barbell like conditioning for me because I don't traditionally love old school cardio. This is really neat. And then you just kind of go down that rabbit hole and you listen to the Glassman talks. And I read the journal articles because, again, I'm, an, I'm a science nerd on, on strength and conditioning. I love this. So, like, Glassman's 
approach to CrossFit and all the journal articles and all the videos, that's what allowed me to sink my teeth in because it felt like, oh my God, I'm learning more here than I am here at, in college. Mm-hmm. So like that, I just started, you know, put my head down and went towards the light. So if I got your story correct, you're doing this internship and then you decide, all right, I need kind of the gym business education and you pivot to working in a global gym. Is that correct? Correct. So Nashville, Tennessee, that internship's going well. And while I'm there, I also find a local CrossFit affiliate owner. Shout out to Stephen Baker at uh, CrossFit Middle Tennessee, which is no more. But he, uh, great dude. He let me for like 600 bucks a month. I was like his go-to guy. Like I'd help him. We'd go to Lowe's. We'd put in the lifting platforms. I'd coach the classes. We'd take naps together in the afternoon because we'd been up since fucking 4 a.m. Like he was a great dude. And I saw how hard he worked. And I realized he he loves his coaching, but he hasn't figured out the business thing. But none of us has figured out the business thing at that point in time. So even in his employee, you could recognize that? A thousand percent. I mean, he had a drawer and people just drop, like literally just bring checks in whenever and just open a drawer and set them in there. Like that was the system. But also that's all we knew. It wasn't like it is today with guys like me and all the other dudes making all the business content. So like, but I knew then I'm like, there's no, I've never taken a business class in my life. There's no fucking way this is how it can be done. Because I want to be able to do what I want to do when he can't even do what he wants to do. He's got, he's, you know, stuck here 60 hours a week. I was like, there's got to be a better way. Now, growing up, you know, you, I know Globo Gym. I worked out in Globo Gyms my entire life. Um, I had been a personal trainer at a Globo Gym. Those guys know the business side because, again, that's the nature of that business. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go do that. I had a friend who uh, got me a, a couple interviews and I, I, I did well at the interviews and, um, You've seen my content, my, this kid named uh, Ambrose Laburu. He was one of the, the managers at a location in Nashville, Tennessee. He interviewed me, and he's like, bro, this is, your, this is a dangerous place to work. You either come in and you perform, or you will be chewed up and spit out. And I went in there, and I kind of I, I, I took to it. They gave me my own club um, in the worst part of uh, Nashville, Tennessee, this area called Antioch, where I was the only white employee mainly. And it was just this really run-down, ghetto-ass club. And there was nobody had any money. But I had to be hitting $30,000 of personal training sales every single month. And we'd nickel and dime 1% of the time. And uh, I hit some sales <laughs> records. I did really well. And that eventually led me to kind of getting uh, a, a gig in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing a similar job at a bigger, uh, smaller company, bigger role. Okay. So how do you pivot now back to CrossFit? Yeah. So I'm, I, I, I've learned this Globo Gym thing. And I'm like, and I'm, part of me is like, I'm never going back. I'm like, I'm going to be one of these district managers for Gold's Gyms or Urban Actives. And I'm making crazy commissions. It's going to be awesome. And I've, you know, I'm buying a, finally bought myself a nice car, like following my dad's footsteps. I get my first uh, Mustang GT. I buy it and I'm like, oh, I'm the man. This is great. I've got money. I've never had this much money in my bank account. I get this job in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, after a quick scare. I got a, I got a DUI. I got pulled over drinking and driving in Nashville, Tennessee. And I thought it was good. Cause I went to Cadoba at like one in the morning and crushed two large burritos. I'm like, Oh, there's, it soaked up all the alcohol. I'm totally legit <laughs> to drive. They pull me over. I get popped. I don't blow. So I lawyered up and he was a good lawyer. He got a knockdown to reckless operation, but in the state in North uh, Nashville or Tennessee, if you refuse to give a breathalyzer, you instantly lose your license for a year. So it's essentially almost the same exact punishment as getting a DUI in Nashville, but you don't have DUI in your record. So I take that, but now I've just got, I've got this new gig in Charlotte. This other company has hired me to be their VP of personal training for the entire company. And they want me driving back and forth. They want me moving to Charlotte over the Charlotte clubs, 
and they want me driving back and forth to Louisville, Kentucky, and Elizabethtown, Kentucky every month. So you'd accepted this job and then get this yes. DUI right before yes. they want you to start yeah, traveling. Yeah, I can't tell them. Like, there's no way. There's no, I went, I traveled to Charlotte. I crushed the interview. I got the job. I even got more money than I wanted, than I, or than they had pitched. I got them to give me a budget for payroll. Like I got everything I wanted. This was like a dream gig. Charlotte seemed really cool. I was excited. And then I get popped on this thing. So from the first to the 15th, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina at the Charlotte club. And then the 16th to the end of the month, I'm in Kentucky and I, but I have to drive. They're not going to pay for me to fly. Well, I've, got a suspended license for a year. So I did a year of driving like the exact <laughs> speed limit. And every time a cop would get behind me, I would shit my pants and like pull off and get off at an exit. Like I'm getting gas and wait for him to go. It would take me three hours longer every trip. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't speed. I was constantly stopping cause I was scared shitless. So you were, you were able to keep this a secret. From yeah, the company? Kept this secret. I even brought it. So what I did is then I, uh, cause now I'm the man, I'm the VP of whatever personal training. Uh, I got all this payroll. I, I hired a buddy from college, one of my best friends. He still lives here today. His name is Ralph. And I'm like, Ralph, I'll get you a job. You'll be a trainer. You'll make good money. I'll even let you live me for a while, but you have to drive me everywhere. And he's like, all right. Yeah. He wanted to get out of Ohio. He was a few years younger than me. He went to Muskegon college. We were in the same fraternity and he's like, yeah, let me, whatever. So he came, he'd drive me around <laughs> half the time. He was probably buzzed or drunk too when we were up. But like, so it was, it was a horrible scenario, but, um, you know, being stupid and, you know, 20, whatever, four or five, six, seven years old. Um, but yeah, that, that was, uh, that was what kind of got me into Charlotte and, and, you know, the corporate thing, but I, the, to your question, the pivot, uh, I, I still wanted to scratch that itch. I, I like every month. I mean, these clubs, I was helping generate tens of twenties of thirties of thousands of dollars in point of sale cash. I was like, why can't I do that for myself? I'm like, well, you don't have a building. You don't have this, you don't have that. Well, these apartment complexes in Charlotte, you've driven around here enough. They have really nice fitness centers on site. Some of them up to 2000 square feet. I'm like, these places all got their own little gyms and Charlotte wasn't as popular in 2009 and 10 as it is today. So I just went in there and I was like, I made up a company. I was like ESC Mobile Fitness. ESC stood for Elite Strength and Conditioning. It was an LLC I'd formed back in the day. And um, I was like, I, I, you know, I just came up with this business model of where I come in and every new person that joins the apartment complex, I, you'll book them with me and I will give them a free 60-minute consultation and PT session. If they decide to buy training from me, great. Now they're using your facility, which you spend a ton of money on. Now they're bragging about how their apartment complex has trainers on site. It gets seen as an amenity you offer, and I won't offer it to your competitors. And so it was like I had fresh leads all the time. So that grew to a crazy side hustle. I had like six 1099 trainers working for me, and I was bringing home after taxes and expenses probably about six, seven grand a month on top of my full salary and commission on my big kid job. But you start running the two of those for long enough and you start slacking on your big kid job that's paying, you know, it's got the salary and the benefits and all that stuff. And then you are like, okay, let me get back there. And then your side hustle drops. You're like, shit, the second I took my foot off the gas pedal, my side hustle stopped making as much money. I couldn't take those consultations, whatever. So uh, luckily enough, fate intervened and the company found out I had started a side business and they believed that was against the non-compete. So uh, they canned me like in a heartbeat. They sent corporate down from Kentucky to do it in person. It was like a really big deal for the company. So, because uh, I had all these people underneath me, the clubs were making a ton of money. I'm sure that was a tough decision, but um, I I pissed enough people off. They were they felt a little disrespected by me doing this, which I thought was kind of silly. Um but yeah, that was it. And it was kind of sink or swim from there on. So you, you get fired and you uh, have this gig going. Yep. And so what now? Mm. So the gig was great. Personal training, though, 
is not sustainable long-term. There are very few clients who are going to have a personal trainer at, at market rates, good market rates for hour, or for years and years on end. It's expensive, especially my this millennial district. This millennial, I would get these kids because they made good money, but they were only going to hold on to it for maybe a year tops. And I knew Boutique Group was growing. CrossFit was growing as an affiliate model. Orange Theory had not kicked off yet, but I could tell boutique fitness was going to be big. Curves had failed, but I always looked at the tragedy what happened in Curves, if anyone knows the history there, as it was um, it was more of mismanagement uh, from the leadership down than an actual bad business model. So I truly believed in boutique. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to take everyone. No more PT. Literally all those 1099s, you're done but I am going to do this one group thing at 6 to 30 in the morning and 6 30 PM. So all you clients can come to this. And so where's this taking place? At? This is at a park here in Charlotte. Okay. So just a park, no permit, nothing, just pull up in a pick up my pickup truck. Uh, my equipment was in the back and I was just doing these two hours. And in between those two hours, I was going to all the apartment complexes that I had relationships with and saying, okay, we're no longer doing the PT, right? If people ask for it, sure. I'll grind and hustle and do those sessions. But we're doing these boot camps in the park. And I'll even come and do introductory boot camps here in your parking lot. And then if I sell anybody, then they'd have to come to me in the park after that. So I'm just, I was essentially using the same, um, the same distribution method to get in front of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people um, where these apartment complexes. But the apartment co- complexes can't like this because they want their facility to be used. They, they could, but also there, at that point, there was nobody else doing my model. So like when I was like, hey, I'm no longer doing the PT, you know, I was telling them, hey, we've grown so big, we're switching the model. It's not like they'd be like, oh, well, we're going to go with another vendor. They're just, I mean, there were a couple one-off personal trainers who would wander in, but like you would go on my website. I mean, my guys all had branded shirts. You would have thought we were a million-dollar company. And I mean, the business cards were legit. The marketing was, I had paid, I have professional photographers everywhere, but that was just me understanding business coming from the Globo Gym world. I just, these guys thought we were a huge amenity. Like, oh, they must be in all kinds of different states. And this is a, they thought that. So like, they never tried to like go to somebody else. They just were like, okay, sure. ESC Mobile Fitness is now meeting at Lotta Park. Go there. Mm-hmm. And they were super cool with it. So what kind of turnout are you having with these uh, I, you know, anywhere, you know, these things would have anywhere from 10 to 30 people at them. Uh, marketing was very guerrilla. I created door hangers. I would go, um, cause I had key fobs to every one of the apartments. That was a cool thing is I was able to get in any apartment I wanted to that I had a, a deal with. And I'd go there from two in the morning to about four 30 in the morning. And I would hang door hangers across 400 doors. Right. And they would let me do it. I would, uh, go into park, go into the parking garages and underneath the windshields, the fucking flyers, and they would let me do it. Uh, and it wasn't until Charlotte really grew. And then everyone and their mother wanted to hang door hangers on there that everyone and their mother wanted to, you know, litter, unfortunately, the entire parking garage was stuff and they had to cut it all me included, but it, it was all right. I had a reputation at that point. I had a good following 2030 or whatever. And then I really did a big marketing push for this in the summer. Cause I knew once this summer ends, this is like summer 2011. Um, this summer ends, I I've got to be in a brick and mortar. I have to be because it's going to get cold. I've got to make this transition. Um, and I made a huge push and we had a, we had a really good sales month. Maybe we had 40-ish people all enrolled in this outdoor boot camp for the summer. And then my goal is to have a brick and more, take that money, use it as a, you know, a down payment for security deposit, all that stuff, and then get equipment and then have a brick and mortar to convert them into. So what are you charging for these workouts? I think we were at 125 per month to come, and you only had two options. Uh, yeah, two options, 6.30 a.m. and a 6.30 p.m. And you can come, come as mo- much as you want. Monday through Thursday, nothing on Friday. And then um, uh, 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 9 a.m. on Saturday. 
So, I mean, it, it wasn't an overly demanding thing. And 125 then was, wasn't bad, considering I was, like, hauling this equipment out of my fucking truck. Um, and then when we moved to the facility, I think our first, you know, we took it from 125 to, like, 165. It seems right so the crazy to me, though, because you could have four days of bad weather and oh, people paid. and 100%. So, like, it was rain or shine It was kind of the thing. And there were these big gazebos, like, wooden pavilions. And if it rained... I literally would be just go underneath there and you'd be this gazebo and I'd be hanging gymnastics rings from there. I'd be showing up an hour early to set up and we'd be hitting there. And But I could have people run outside and come back in. This was the, these were the days where that kind of working out, this is like when Spartan racing was kind of just starting to pick up obstacle courses, like hardcore, the Sufferfest kind of scenario. That, that, was, that was on trend. So it worked. It matched what the overall fitness market was also seeing and being poked with, you know, CrossFit was slowly coming up at that point. And, uh, yeah, it, it worked, but you're right. Like going back now, I don't think I could pull that off now. Yeah, it's, it's just crazy to me. Um, but, um, so let's talk your, you start actively looking for a building. Yeah, I started, I started looking in the, the thing I, I've, and I, so I'm in, you know, the building we're sitting in now, I purchased, I was in a commercial spot before that. And then my first commercial. So I've had, including this one, I've had three. I've never found a spot that was listed, right? I've always gone into businesses that I'm like, this would be a perfect spot. Are you planning on going out of business anytime soon? When is your lease up? Who's your landlord? Like I, and that's how I found all my spots. I, they weren't on the grid. They weren't on LoopNet or anything like that. They literally were just, um, they were there. And I would walk in and say, hey, what, what, are you the owner? Are you like, no, I'm a tenant. I'm like, cool. Are you, you like this spot? They're like, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, and I'd leave, like, I want to lease it. They're like, we get the hell out of here. We love it. And I do that over and over and over again. And then I finally found some spots that were like, actually, no, we're trying to get out of our lease. I was like, oh. So what was this first spot? Uh, it's 1127, that right there, uh, South Mid Street. And it was uh, just an 1,800-square-foot space um, at a, probably about a th- it was 2,100 square feet. 1,800 of it was gym floor. The other one was my office slash apartment because I lived in there for a while. So what kind of business was in, in here? It was uh, Speedy Prince. They made paper traditional marketing, business cards and flyers and, you know, posters and things like that. And this was just an extra side of their, you know, their printing press area that they didn't, they were not using that had been offices way back in the day. So you roll up in the spot and roll up, knock down the th- knock down the walls, rip up the carpets. I go dark on all my buddies, all the guys I would go drinking with on the weekends didn't see me for about a good eighteen to twenty months because I was doing all the upfit myself. And then you know you're starting a business that's all you know. And there's a there's a lot. One thing a lot of people don't talk about. There's a lot of people that your especially your friends give you a lot of fucking hate. They're your good buddies, but like it's when you're deviating from the person they know, and they're like, "Oh, what do you? You think you're gonna be Mr. Bally's? You're gonna open up a fucking gym? Like, who do you think you are? Like, because you're deviating, and maybe it's highlighting some of their own insecurities of them not pursuing things they want. But I mean, my buddies were just like, "Bro, cut it the fuck out. Let's go. Let's get some beers and hang out." And I'm like, "I, I can't, man. I've got to do this, 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 and this." And they're like, "So we're not good enough for you?" Like, there were those kind of tensions, and those don't exist anymore. I, but I think in the beginning. Anyone who's listening to this has started a business, some of your friends, and typically only your nine to five are friends, they have a hard time downloading what you're really, what you're trying to say and what you're doing. It just doesn't compute for them. And uh, that's tough. I went through a lot of the same thing when I opened the gym yeah. back in 13. Yeah. Um, some of the people that you were closest to, you I didn't understand all the work you were having to put in. and Or why? Like, I think also, I'm like, dude, you've got, you had that great thing. Like, why'd you have to go fuck it up by running your little personal training thing on the side? Like, who, it, but, 
you know, now owning your own business is the, is like the thing. That's what people want to do. But like back then it was like, dude, you had it made, you were making money, blah, blah, blah. Like, why did you do that? As, um, yeah, it is, you know, it's something rare that few people understand a lot more people understand it these days. So when did you get this first spot open? Who, um, I would say it was 2011. So I would say the fall, like the late fall of 2011, we moved in. The floors weren't finished. I mean, it was a, I didn't even, I couldn't, I didn't have flooring. Uh, it was a shit show. I've got pictures, pictures on, uh, on, you find, actually you can't find anymore. CrossFit South End, the, I, I shut that page down, but it still exists. It's just not visible to the public, but there's a ton of photos there that I still have that are just the old gym and just uh, the disaster that it was. I made it look as nice as possible, but. But you got to look at your customer. They, they're used to working out in the park. So this yeah, is. Correct. This is an upgrade. Exactly. And CrossFit's so new. Nobody, there's no such thing as a nice CrossFit gym then. Right. Like it's just, and it wasn't even CrossFit originally. It was ESC fitness. I didn't even affiliate for like another like eight or nine months. And so it was just ESC fitness when ESC mobile fitness. And that was ESC fitness at the, you know, the boot camp, and it stayed ESC fitness. It was just a, I couldn't even afford a sign. I just had a fucking tractor tire spray painted blue with ESC fitness on it right in front of the building. That was it. That was my sign. Crazy. And then that, that was actually the first big purchase I ever made was that sign right there. And then I carried it over to me because I, I moved. I went from that eight, that twenty one hundred square foot spot, and then I moved to the uh, seven or seventy five hundred square foot spot next door. So you obviously are successful with this first location. Yeah, you're growing it. Yep. So how do we get to a second location? So um, I'm busting at the seams. I'm I'm pretty flush. I'm no longer having to live inside of the building anymore. I was like living it. I had a couch in there. I had my Ohio State flag. I had a little mini fridge and. Uh, there was a bathroom, no shower. So I'd shower at my buddy's house or at the Y and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but then I started dating a chick. She, she let me live with her for a while. So it's kind of bouncing back and forth. Uh, and then I make enough money. I've got my own apartment and I'm like, cool, we need to expand. And there's a location right next door. And I did the same thing I did before went in there. Hey guys, you own the building. They're like, no, I'm like, they're an owner here who owns the business that leases the building. They're like, yeah, he's in the back. I'm like, can I talk to him? And I just straight up was like, hey, are you guys, I'm looking for a new building. I just said, I mean, are you guys, is your lease coming up for renewal? Are you staying here? Like, we're trying to get out now. I'm like, perfect. Let's talk. And then that's how that happened. Which, uh, for people that don't know, this is right next to Bank of America Stadium, right? Yeah, like this is a stone. Like right now, it's prime real estate. That The building I originally was in and the one that I moved into, both those lots got purchased in what we call an assembly purchase. And I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood like $9 million. So how did you afford this at the time? At the time, it was great. It was 7,500 square feet for uh, $6,100 a month. Okay. I mean, like, it was, it was amazing. I had my own parking lot. So I, this is a standalone warehouse, a stone's throw away from the Bank of America building. And my deal with the landlord, there were, on the, we had a side parking lot, 300 parking spaces. He got to generate the revenue in that parking lot on home games. And I said, okay. He said, you can have the front lot, which I can fit about like 30 or 40 cars in. You can keep the revenue from that one. So every home game, I was making, fuck, I was making uh, probably nine grand a year total in selling parking off there. It was the best years ever. I would roll up on a Sunday, still a little buzz from the night before. I'd throw open the bay doors. We'd have, I'd set up the beer pong tables inside the gym. Uh, I'd turn on the speakers and I'd grab a case of Bud Light and I'd be on the corner with a, my flag and a sign that said parking, $25, whatever it was, waving cars in, collecting cash, and then members and friends would just show up and the gym was just this It was cool, a huge tailgate party. It was just such, oh, it was so much fun. And then it's a standalone building. I have this giant 30-foot sign with, um, you could see it there in that photo. There's a giant 30-foot sign up there. Everybody has to pass by it. 
I mean, I never spent a dollar in marketing really until we moved into this location. I rebranded because nobody knows what urban movement is, but CrossFit and the word South End was just perfect, just like so many other CrossFit gyms found. The, the geographical naming of your town or your borough um, is great for SEO. Love it, man. So uh, how do we transition from being uh, downtown to this location? Yeah, so that location, as you were saying, like now you're saying, like, how in the fuck do you for- afford that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you can see the writing on the wall. On a commercial lease, on average, they go up by 3% annually. So I was like, okay, in 10 years, am I really going to be selling 30% more fitness? I'm like, uh, probably not. Can I raise my prices 30% over 10 years? I could do that. But there is a market cap on what I can probably charge for group fitness. So like that, that's not a sustainable model either. So what are the options? Um, own something. At the time, uh, the woman I was dating who would eventually become my wife, we're, not, we're no longer, we're divorced now, uh, still best friends, but her dad uh, was absolutely instrumental in this. He is a urban design, uh, an urban designer. He's an architect. He was an architect firm. And he goes in, he designs cities. He designs neighborhoods. South End is one of his creations, wow. like the branding of it, the naming idea, the, the way it feels, the vibe. His firm got that deal from the city. And uh, so we talked and, and he really instilled in me, uh, he owned a building um, that he recently just sold. He, you know, tell me, he's like, hey, you're an entrepreneur. This 401k idea, not happening for guys like us. You had, do have an opportunity, though, to purchase land, be an owner-operator inside of it, run your business out of it. You got to pay rent anyway. And if you can make this work, you'll be really happy in 20 years when you can hand it down to your daughter or sell it or do something. And uh, and I took that to heart, and I instantly I started studying commercial deals. I was listening on like the, the clear access rate, like public access stations, the town hall meetings where people were doing zoning rezone, like rezoning petitions. I was like, who's moving in? And like, I'd hear the name of the company and I'd be on Google and I'd like, look up like, what does their portfolio look like? Oh my God, they built all this in Minneapolis. Maybe they're bringing that here. Oh shit. That area is going to go up in value. So I like, I became like this little commercial real estate junkie kind of guy looking at this. Um, and myself and a uh, future, my, my uh, future daughter's godfather, his name's Ed, he became my business partner in this because I could not float this financially entirely myself and he was in the same position. So we partnered up, we created a, a real estate holdings company and we tried to buy one building and fell through. I was like, screw it, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, that was like a year and a half of my life trying to buy another building. I'm like, I'm jaded, I'm done. And then I was just looking at this building for lease and I was... I was loved it. And the location was great. And I could see the the potential. I was like, let me talk to the owner about buying. And so me and Ed, we took him out to dinner. I mean, I just schmoozed him, pulling out that fucking Brower charisma and fucking closed this guy and, you know, convinced him to sell me the property. It's an awesome story. So, you know, the reason I'm here today is because of all the content you've produced over the years. So let's talk about what, what inspired you to create content for yeah. small business owners? You know, I, I was, I loved debate in high school. I was, uh, I did debate, like we had a class that, uh, that you did debate in and I loved getting up in front of a group of people, even when I took a fucked up position. So like pro Holocaust, right? Like that's not an easy position to defend, but like, and the teacher be like, no, Stuart, you can't be pro Holocaust. We're not arguing. I'm like, no, I'll create a convincing argument for pro Holocaust. And not that I believed in pro Holocaust. I loved the idea of creating an argument that no matter, even if you hated it, like it was, it was not indefensible, but like I was able to create an argument for it. I was like, I loved getting up and razzing a crowd a little bit and getting a little bit of that, like a little bit of that hate, a little bit of admiration for like taking that stance. Like there was just something about that I really always liked. Um, 
you know, I never wanted to be in acting or do anything, but I, I like the attention of talking to people and and being good enough to have their attention. Like the, you know, that's what I really sunk my teeth into that. And I remember Jason Kalipa and JP, um, big in the CrossFit scene, they started this box to business kind of seminar thing back in the day. And I, I was listening to their stuff. I'm like, this is good. And I didn't know Jason like I know him today or JP. And, uh, but I thought they were really smart, you know, slick guys. But all the guys giving business advice back then, None of them were like with my what I considered like self-made, like the American dream self-made. Like Jason, ha I mean, and I hate saying this because it's not that he's successful because he won the CrossFit Games, but that notoriety definitely gave him a bigger megaphone than than any than he would have had had he not mm -hmm. right. Um, and Ben Bergeron, same thing. Not that his success being a high-level coach is you know uh, and his athletes and his wife winning the games is why he's successful. He's successful because he works very hard, but it gave him a bigger megaphone. I didn't have a megaphone. I had an iPhone mm -hmm. and I had, okay, you know, six Facebook, uh, CrossFit affiliate owners groups that I could make this content. And that's all I did. I took my shitty iPhone with no lighting, nothing. I didn't know anything about cameras, nothing. I would just make these videos and they were long form. They'd go on me ranting for like 10 minutes plus. And then I'd upload, and uh, they just started catching traction. Some of your original stuff reminds me of the, uh, again, faster guy. Uh, you, John Gilson. Yes. Yes. Uh, it, it's was very much like that in front of a whiteboard. Yep. Very insightful. That, that's probably – John Gilson did an affiliate cash flow calculator video that I still – I I think I've, I downloaded because I knew it would disappear from the internet one day. And I watched it probably no less than 50 times when I was starting my business. And I remember being like, John knows his stuff. And he we have a different delivery. But I know, but like at learning and after going through Global Gym, I'm like, I know just as much as these guys. I, I actually think I know more. No one's talking about personal training. Like that was my thing. PT first. Like I wanted to be that guy in the space really hammering that home for people. Um, so I just had a bunch of ideas because I came from a different business background than just CrossFit. And I started making these videos and the WTF thing. I was sitting in my wife's salon. I was like, what would I call this? Like, how do you name a business, right? How do you name a media handle? And I was just like, I... Like every, I just know, like I what, like I would literally Isaac would be in the office at the old place. She'd be like, "Stu, this, this didn't happen." And I would just be like, "What in the fuck? Like, are you kidding me?" And just, I just had all these what the fuck moments throughout my entrepreneurial career and every day and owning a business. I was like, "Cool, it's called what the fuck gym talk." I don't know, is that punchy? And like, I had to ask my wife at that. I'm like, "Hey, you like what the fuck gym talk?" She goes, "Yeah, whatever." I'm like, "All right, cool. What <laughs> the fuck gym talk? Buy the URL, buy the domain, get the handles, and that was it." So, so you start turning on the iPhone recording. What are your goals with this? I didn't think of it as consulting. I like I I knew that at some point I would get enough attention if I did it right to where people would I could then pay because that's that's what a consultant is. It's just someone who leverages their experience for money. That's it. I have more experience than you. You pay me X amount, and I'm going to save you X amount of money from the mistakes you make. I didn't know how it worked that. So I literally I was like one of the first guys to do the you know I'd get someone on a Skype call at the time. And it was a side-by-side. -side. And the first, like, three people I did for free. Because I just needed you guys to see me on one side, someone on the other side. And I'd record the entire 60-minute, 90-minute call where they would just, here's my problem, and I'd give an answer. And they're like, oh, my God, that's great. And then I just clipped all those videos out. So, like, one call would net me 10 little micro pieces of content. And I'd throw it out there in these CrossFit affiliate owners groups. I mean, I was owner. I was a participant in probably 46 CrossFit affiliate owners in Zimbabwe, in Minnesota, in Cleveland, Ohio. And I just distributed them there. And then that just like, hey, can I get on a call? How much is that? And the first call ever, I think I, that I paid charged for, I think it was uh, Sean Ryder at Shenandoah Fit was my first. I charged $100 for the hour. 
and I thought, holy shit, I'm I'm the man. Like, when is this? What? 2015. Okay. Yep. 2015 um, is when I first started making the content. And this is, you know, you got the rise of the guys like the Gary V's of the world. And, and you can see that, okay, content at scale can get you attention, especially if you are helping solve a problem and you have a personality. Because it's not just being smart. There's a lot of smart people out there. You have to have something to say. And you have to have an entertaining or educational way to say it because delivery and the way you resonate with people means everything. You, like two people could say identical messages and if one's not charismatic and doesn't have that pizzazz and that you know bravado, it doesn't hit like the other guy. Right. I, I definitely understand. Um, so you're growing traction. You're working with Sean uh, Rodder, you said? Yeah, he was like my first, I think he was like the first call I ever did where I, like, I actually made that $100 for an hour and I thought I was fucking, like, I was like, this is insane. Like, PT, we're charging 70 bucks an hour and I get to sit here on my computer and talk shop about business that I'm obsessed with. Like, yeah. So, I, like, Joe's just started happening. I started creating this consulting business. So, if we've got the gym and then this is your workload with consulting, like, yeah. when do we start seeing this pendulum swing? It was, it already swung. By 2015, I'm a removed owner. Like, I've got Isaac, I've got 9, 10, 12, 30, I don't know how many coaches. We've got a great flush business. I had done really well. I had capitalized on, like, Groupon before Groupon sucked. We, I mean, we had done a great job at CrossFit South End. Um, I was, we were very profitable, good margins. I was very happy, very removed. Um, I was kind of bored. And it's like, but what's the next thing? The next thing is like, well, okay, once you've done something really well, you can now leverage it as consulting. And you can teach people about it. And I like being on camera. I like talking. Let's combine those things. And then that kind of turned into, okay, well, what would I charge? All right, well, now, how, what am I going to do? Am I creating a system? Is this, are these e-courses? Or am I just like a lawyer? Am I just going to like take your problems individually on every call, create the solution for it, and then have you execute? And, and so I just kind of figured out my business model from the consulting standpoint. But yeah, so the gym was doing its thing, but I wasn't really working in it much. And then WTF Gym Talk just became full-time. And there's a moment in time where 2015 to 2016, heavy on content. 2016-ish in the beginning of the year kind of stopped for a hot minute because um, we were we were getting ready to start buying the building. I was in that kind of process. And then I realized this is the most exciting time for me to document and really have the camera on. I need to go all in on it. And so there's like there's probably like a four-month drop-off there where I probably – I don't think I created anything, wow. and um, which is insane now. Um to think about that because we literally, my goal every every single day is we have, my goal is to have a video out every single day on some media platform, some new video. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that was it. And then it just proportionally became WTF and it became into paid speaking gigs and content deals and, and working with clients. So you pivot from, you know, these side-by-side -side <laughs> videos of you working with uh, clients yep. to the vlog yeah, yeah, and then vlogging because the medium's always got the the content's got to always evolve. So like this side by side thing was great, but it was super easy to copy. So I'm like, all right, I've got making money now. Now I'm charging way more than a hundred dollars a session. What's more interesting? Well, then you look at the the Casey Neistat's of the world and the David Dobrik's and the YouTubers and what do they do to harness video watching attention? Well, they make it they you know changing locations, doing different things. The the concept of the vlog. So then I started vlogging. Uh, I got a client. Um, 30 minutes north, 20 minutes north of here. So I would travel with my camera there and record me going into her gym and doing all that. And that was really helpful for people to see that, oh, he actually goes into the gym and fixes it. And and that was great. Um, and then I started traveling, um, getting invited to speak at different things. So that added excitement and all these different video concepts that you just, someone who just shoots talking head videos in their office that they 
gets boring on a, on a cust on a viewer quickly. Now again, there's some guy you can do it if you you do it right. You can still win at that method, but uh, it, I wanted to spice it up a little. So you start the vlog and um, you're having success with that, and then we have the self made summit that I attended. Yeah. in October of 2019, is that correct? Yeah, it was October 9th. I think October 19th through the 21st of that year. Yep. So then your big push in 2020 is to travel and do a lot of uh, speaking. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I, I put on the self-made summit. I did it kind of as a joke, not even a joke. Like I, I wanted to put on an event. I knew I had a captive audience that I could put on an event. I had no idea how, I did not think that we'd have that many people show up from all over the place. Um, my network through the, the podcast interviewing people, I was able to get amazing guests in here to come speak. So that really drove a good crowd. It wasn't, people weren't there just to see me. Um, I was really impressed with that. But again, okay, cool, you did an event, what's next? So in 2020, I really wanted to hit uh, and travel and do speaking gigs and put on seminars. And I did one in Boston, I did my, I did the side 10 lined up, and then the second one in Charleston, South Carolina, and then COVID hit. And that was the end of that. So I was like, okay, I kind of just sat. I mean, I, there wasn't any new videos I was putting out. It was COVID, I was trying to figure out my own shit. I, you know, um, yeah, there, there was another little quick pause in content. But, but even... With everything that happened with last year with COVID, you still once again pivot and think about new revenue streams and how you're going to evolve the brand with the copywriting service yeah. that you started. And yep. then now we're talking about licensing urban movements. Yeah. So the copywriting was great. Um, you know, again, without the self made summit, was a, it was, you know, that was an incredibly, uh, that was a big revenue source. And it was, I, my, I, my goal is to 2x it in 2020. Um, Obviously, that's not happening. So, what else can I do? And I, I help micro gym owners with their marketing and branding. And but the one thing that's really hard for them is is copywriting. That's a skill set that a lot of entrepreneurs don't have. They can think and talk because they don't get talkers block because they talk about their business all the time. But writers block, they fucking get. So, uh, hired a copywriter. We started that service. That's been great for us this year. Um, it doesn't touch the amount of revenue I would have made uh, with another self made summit, but it's been another cool service I'm able to create for people, even if it's not that profitable for me. And then, um, yeah, then urban movement, the other business, uh, needs to grow. And in this brick and mortar world, you only grow a few ways. And one of those ways is with OPM, other people's money. And you are able to go and leverage your brand by having other people open up locations under your name, very similar to what CrossFit did. Awesome. So, uh, I want to wrap up with a couple questions. Um, so I'm a firm believer that adversity, if channeled correctly, brings out the best in people. So what adversities uh, contributed the most to you helping you be successful? I think I definitely have thick skin. You know, uh, losing my dad when I was 16, um, we didn't get into it too much, but my mom, she had a huge, we had a domestic abuse issue with the guy she was seeing in New Jersey that was very, very graphic. Um, those two kind of things moving back to Ohio. So there's like this, at 16 years old, that's kind of where I could have, there's a lot of scenarios where a child who goes through that within a short period of time, within two years, could you can see the flow chart of, well, he lives in his mom's basement and he wears black and he's goth and he doesn't talk to anybody and he's planning on shooting up the school. Like that is definitely a, a life path that those kind of life occurrences could put on somebody. It obviously did not for me. I think going through that stuff, it, it definitely in some way helped forge a level of perseverance. Um, uh, a mindset shift that, you know, it's not about your resources. It's about being resourceful. It's not about your circumstances. It's about what you do with it type stuff. So I would definitely say that um, 
that helped a ton. I didn't have any, I didn't have, I didn't have a lot. I had father figures, grandfathers uh, in my life, but I never had anyone as like that North star. I'm a sucker for dad figures. Like, uh, even my my ex-wife's father-in-law, we are still super close. The girl I'm dating now, I love her dad. I am a sucker for like older male father figures. And it's like the the broken little boy in me. Like I, I want to please them. I want to make them proud of me, all that. And I think never having that as a young kid, um, I only had myself. And that's where I kind of go back to, I'm just going to do, be able, I'm going to create a life that allows me to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And if I can't do that, I've, I'm letting this imaginary father figure down if I can't do that. That's awesome. So we look back at, uh, you know, the, what you've done over the last eight to 10 years. Um, you know, I know your story through all your, your content creation, but what's the one accomplishment or the, the thing that you're the most proud of that you've done in the last eight to 10 years? Uh, in all real, and it's not, it's not just cause we're on this now. It's, it's this, it's the concept that I make a video, a few hundred people watch it in the first year, maybe thousands of people watch it at some point. It's this video that has this small ripple. Like it really, it's not a magnitude. These aren't millions of people watching my content, right? However, one of those ripples is someone like you. And then that ripple transfers into you creating your own fucking ripple, your own podcast or making videos for your gym. It's, it's this idea of that. If I died today, one of the things people would say is he was the guy that inspired me to do a thing. And now this thing of mine will live on forever. This gym, this urban movement business, WTF, I, WTF, if I die, WTF dies with it. It's gonzo. Uh, the gym would, would survive, but I think it's the, the ripple effect in the content creation. I truly believe I, you know, I love a phrase. One of my favorite, uh, YouTubers is just keep uploading. The scariest button ever is to hit record. That's the first one. Cause now you've got to have the balls to record yourself. And you, you're like, I don't like the way I look on camera, the, the sound of my voice, my podcast. And then the second, the next scariest button is upload. And this idea of, if you have something to say and you have a unique and interesting way to say it, put that shit out into the world. And whether it turns into successful businesses or not, or you just have great conversations or you're able to, you know, create another media outlet for your business in any way, shape or form, having been the genesis for that for somebody, that is very, very fucking cool for me. So that's like my high level uh, at a low level. This license model was something that um, if it, if successful and we're able to pull it off and. I can go to a Chicago, Illinois, and while I'm visiting there and doing a vlog and traveling, I could pop into an urban movement there. That would be a really cool moment, you know, if I take my daughter to a city one day and like, hey, you see that gym there? It's not daddy's, but daddy's idea definitely started that. That would be a really cool moment. It's it's like the people you see on Shark Tank. They have a product, and they go into Walmart and see it on the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're very much similar kind of scenario. Yeah. So to wrap up, what are your goals long-term besides this license model? Like, how do you keep getting better? Um, I'm going to, again, the evolution of content. We have the long form podcast. It's the first time I've actually, the name of it, uh, it's going to be called shoot the shit. And it is a long form podcast under the WTF handle where I travel and I'm doing two, three hour long interviews with individuals in the fitness industry. I'm going to stay in my niche of micro gym owners and in this industry, learn from them, um, and that'll be a, a new content um, evolution for me there. And then how do I continue to get better? Uh, I'm constantly learning. But like I think we were talking last night where we having drinks. Like I, I took street photography courses over the summer. Um, I'm going to. I've got you know I have an executive business coach. Uh, somebody I started working with in twenty like right around the end of 2019. Um, I I will continue to learn from the when I got divorced. I you know I went in. I I called like the five or six top entrepreneurs that I knew that also been divorced. I'm constantly going to the second I don't know something that I feel it's valuable for me to learn. 
I am I will put my head down in that rabbit hole as deep as I can go, learn what I need to learn, and then move on. So I think it's just kind of the the self awareness that like I don't fucking know everything. I know a lot about certain things, and I am super ego. Like I have a huge ego on the stuff I think I know. I'm like I know this stuff through and through. I will debate anybody on it. But then here's the stuff I don't know. And if I need to know it, if I feel it's valuable for my business, my personal life, whatever it is, um, I will continue to go and learn that. So as long as I can keep that mindset in the future, as I travel down different paths, licensing, I hired a consultant who knows it way better than I do. Um, And not being ignorant to the fact that, oh, because I've had success in this one thing, that means I could be successful in other business ventures. I I think if I can keep that kind of mindset and perspective, we'll, uh, we'll be okay. Well, Stu, thanks for uh, taking your time on Friday night to hang out and then, uh, heck, 7.30 on Saturday morning <laughs> Hell yeah. to, to record a podcast, man. It's, uh, I never thought uh, 21 episodes in I'd be re- you know here with you, but uh, I appreciate awesome. it, man. 100%, man, and keep doing it. Keep hitting upload and, and keep doing what you're doing. And as long as you keep enjoying doing it and it's fun for you, it'll even if it never – like when these things don't monetize because my stuff – like my podcast doesn't like directly monetize anything right now, like but it still – has ripple effect benefits, whether they're monetary or personal satisfaction or fulfillment. Um, keep doing it, man. I'm super proud of the work you're doing. Awesome. Uh, listeners, appreciate you uh, tuning in with us today. And Stu, once again, thank you. And uh, we'll be recording and talking to you guys very soon. Thanks. Thank you.